Open God's holy word to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah 32 verses 1 through 44. The word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, imprisoned him, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says Yahweh? Behold, I am giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face, and see him eye to eye. And he shall take Zedekiah to Babylon, and there he shall remain until I visit him, declares Yahweh. Though you fight against the Chaldeans, you will not succeed. Jeremiah said, The word of Yahweh came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalem, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard, in accordance with the word of Yahweh, and said to me, Buy my field that is at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of Yahweh. And I bought the field at Anathoth from Hanamel, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on the scales. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase, containing the terms and conditions, and the open copy, and I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, son of Maaseiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my cousin, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. I charged Baruch in their, in, the presence, in their presence, saying, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both the sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in, the, in an earthenware vessel, that they may last for a long time. For thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, I prayed to Yahweh, saying, Ah, Lord Yahweh, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of the fathers to their children after them, O great and mighty God, whose name is Yahweh of hosts. Great in counsel and mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. You have shown signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, and to this day in Israel, and among all mankind, and have made a name for yourself as at this day. You brought your people, Israel, out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and outstretched arm and with terror. And you gave them this land, which you swore to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they entered and took possession of it. But they did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They did nothing of all you commanded them to do. Therefore you have made all this disaster come upon them. 
Behold, the siege mounds have come up to the city to take it, and because of sword and famine and pestilence, the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans who are fighting against it. What you spoke has come to pass, and behold, you see it. Yet you, O Lord Yahweh, have said to me, Buy the field for money and get witnesses, though the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. The word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah. Behold, I am Yahweh, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Therefore, thus says Yahweh, behold, I am giving the city into the hands of the Chaldeans and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. The Chaldeans who are fighting against this city shall come and set this city on fire and burn it with the Houses on whose roofs offerings have been made to Baal, and drink offerings have been poured out to other gods to provoke me to anger. For the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. The children of Israel have done nothing but provoke me to anger by the work of their hands, declares Yahweh. This city has aroused my wrath, my anger and wrath. From the day it was built to this day so that I will remove it from my sight because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah that they did to provoke me. Their kings and their officials, their priests and their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned their back and not, they have turned to me their back and not their face. And though I have taught them persistently, they have not listened to receive instruction. They set up their abominations in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnaman to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech. Though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Now therefore, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold... I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety and they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. For thus says Yahweh, just as I have brought this great, all this great disaster upon this people, so will I bring them upon them all the good that I promised them. Field shall be bought in this land of which you are saying, it is a desolation without man or beast. It is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Field shall be bought for money and deeds shall be signed and sealed and witnessed in the land of Benjamin, in the places about Jerusalem and in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the Shephelah and in the cities of the Negev. For I will restore their fortunes, declares Yahweh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, you are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
You are the God of unfailing covenant love. You are the God whose promises are sure and certain and never fail, despite that those who are called by your name fail again and again. Father, have mercy on us when we, like Hanamel, are just concerned to get what we can out of this life. And now, by your word, grant us hearts that, in light of your promise, Live in obedience and faith as we see Jeremiah in this chapter. In the strong name of Jesus we ask this, amen. We've come now to the second half of what's known as the book of Consolation, this bright spot in the midst of Jeremiah. And the latter half of this book turns from poetry to prose. And with that turn to prose, we have another narrative about a sign act that Jeremiah is to perform. What's a sign act? Let's review those that we've seen so far. In chapter 13, Jeremiah was commanded to purchase a loincloth and then make a long journey with it, somewhere in the ballpark of 600 miles, depending on where along the Euphrates he went. Make this journey to the Euphrates near Babylon and bury it. And it appears he likely made a return trip, only to sometime later be told, go back and retrieve it. And it was spoiled. And we won't go into all the intricacies, the meaning, the significance of this. Suffice it to say, it spoke of judgment. And it was a costly act on Jeremiah's part. And the costliness of it acts as a megaphone to magnify his message. Chapter 16, Jeremiah is forbidden a family, cannot take a wife or have children. Once again, you see this is a very costly act for Jeremiah personally. And again, it speaks of judgment. Chapter 19, Jeremiah is commanded to buy a clay pot and smash it. And again, this speaks of judgment. And though it's not nearly as costly of an investment as the other acts just rehearsed, nonetheless, after the fact... Jeremiah is left with nothing. Chapters 27 through 28, he's told to make yoke bars. And then we say Hananiah the prophet, take them off of his neck and break them. So there Jeremiah is again, having obeyed the Lord, performed the sign act, speaks of judgment, and he has nothing to show for it. But as we're now in the book of Consolation, you might expect that the sign act will not speak of judgment, but of grace. And it does. And you might suspect that this time, perhaps, Jeremiah will come out ahead. But this appears to be the worst investment yet. It'd been one thing if at the beginning of his ministry, he'd been told to invest in some property in and around Babylon. That would have seemed like some great advice. Instead, he's purchasing property in Judah on the eve of her destruction. This is like investing in a French chateau in 1940. After the Nazis have already breached the Maginot Line. This is the tenth year of Zedekiah's reign. He was the last reigning king of Judah. And he reigned 11 years. 
The army of Babylon is currently, verse 2, besieging Jerusalem. That means this field that's in question is in enemy-occupied territory. The siege began during Zedekiah's ninth year. It was interrupted for some brief time because of the approaching Egyptian army that the Babylonians turned their attention to and then afterwards came back to deal with Jerusalem. But not only is Jerusalem under siege, we see that Jeremiah is shut up in the court of the guard. How did he get there? The short answer is given immediately. The long answer we'll begin to see in chapter 34 and then more fully in chapters 37 through 38. So the short answer is that Jeremiah is in prison for preaching. But for his preaching irritating none other than the king himself. Quite often, it isn't preaching that will get the saints in prison. It will get them in prison when it irritates the person at the top. And the issue then is not, most often, a truth matter. It isn't that the king thinks, that's heresy, and thus I'm going to shut you up. It's more often a matter of politics, pride, and pragmatics. Consult John the Baptist and Herod, for an example, that makes that really clear. Zedekiah asks, verse 3, why Jeremiah has been saying, Yahweh says. And the answer would seem to be really plain. Jeremiah has said, Yahweh says, because Yahweh said to say what Jeremiah has said. That's, that's it. Jeremiah has been preaching this for years. Why is he now being shut up in prison? He's been preaching this for years throughout Zedekiah's reign. Why is he now in prison? Well, it gets a little personal. Verse 4, Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape from the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face, and see him eye to eye. And he shall take Zedekiah to Babylon, and there he shall remain until I visit him. That face-to-face meeting with Nebuchadnezzar would be a most unpleasant one for Zedekiah. But we'll deal with that when we get to chapter 39. Here, this is just the setting. As to the long answer, it may be more intricately related to what's happening at this point than is often realized. In Jeremiah 37, 11 through 15, we read, Now when the Chaldean army had withdrawn from Jerusalem at the approach of Pharaoh's army. See, that's the brief interlude that I alluded to. Jeremiah set out from Jerusalem to go to the land of Benjamin to receive his portion. We don't have any clue what's happening there, but it's peculiar he's going back to Benjamin. Remember chapter 1, where is he from? Anathoth and Benjamin. He's going back there where we read to receive a portion. Is this somehow related to the plot of land in question here? We can't be certain, but it is very peculiar. While he's going there, When he was at the Benjamin gate, so named because as you're leaving Jerusalem towards Benjamin, Benjamin gate, a sentry there named Arijah, the son of Shilamiah, 
the son of Hananiah, seized Jeremiah the prophet, saying, You are deserting to the Chaldeans. And Jeremiah said, It is a lie. I'm not deserting to the Chaldeans. But Elijah would not listen to him and seized Jeremiah, brought him to the officials. And the officials were enraged at Jeremiah, and they beat him and imprisoned him in the house of Jonathan the secretary, for it had been made a prison. After pleading with Zedekiah, he's removed to the court of the guard in the palace precincts. Only for the officials to get irritated at Jeremiah again and put him in a cistern. And then Ebed-Melech rescues him and he's back in the court of the guard until the city is destroyed. Very likely, we're at that second point that Zedekiah is in the court of the guard right here. In the longer narrative, the officials are seeking Jeremiah's death, pleading with the king chapter 38, verse 4, let this man be put to death for he is weakening the hands of the soldiers who are left in the city and the hands of all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking the welfare of this people, but their harm. So why was Jeremiah in prison? Pride, politics, and pragmatics. Zedekiah is trying to play both sides. He does not want to hand Jeremiah over to death, but neither does he want him loose, spouting his message any further. Why do many of the powers that be, both inside and out the church, want to confine the Word of God? The issue isn't most often a truth issue. It has to do with pride, politics, and pragmatics. So Jeremiah is thus in prison. And while in prison, verse 6, he gets some unusual insider trading advice. Circumstances would, to appear, would appear to be the absolute worst for investing in property. Jeremiah is in jail. He's in jail indefinitely. He's in jail whenever there are persons who, they don't want him just in jail, they want him executed. The city is under siege and Jeremiah has no delusions about how this is going to play out. He knows it's going to fall. And he's predicted a 70-year exile on the other side of that fall. He's not married. He has no children. He has no heirs. And finally, the piece of land in question would have been in enemy-occupied territory. So all this is on the table. It is all clearly on the table when he insist, Hanamel, his cousin, seemingly insist, not ask, but demands that Jeremiah buy this plot of land, act as a redeemer. Hanamel strikes one as that cousin who comes to the funeral to sell Amway. He sees sees family reunions as a business opportunity. And in this, God's hot tip isn't, look out, be aware, note this, Avoid him. God's hot tip is buy. Let's be clear, though, what Jeremiah is doing, because I think it's right here that our American eyes go really wrong in reading this text. The point of Jeremiah acting as a redeemer wasn't investing so that he would come out ahead. The point of him acting as a redeemer was an act of charity and benevolence. To act as a redeemer was a costly act. Remember Boaz and Ruth? The point isn't that Jeremiah is investing so that he comes out ahead. He's acting as a redeemer in love to his kinsmen and in obedience to God. This action is not taken so that he'll come out ahead. 
the reason you would act as a redeemer was so that your kin would come out ahead. There's there's a lot of mystery here as to exactly what's happening in in Jeremiah acting as this redeemer and possessing the land himself, as the terms are used here, and 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 whose hand it will ultimately be in, and why Hanamel is selling it. Because normally Hanamel would have sold it to someone else, and then Jeremiah would come along and redeem it so that it comes back into Hanamel's hands. We don't know. But Leviticus 25 makes it abundantly clear that the reason why a redeemer would purchase this land back was because God allotted an inheritance to the people of Israel by families. It showed, that piece of dirt showed their participation in the covenant that God had made with His people. It was a tangible expression, a sign that they were part of the covenant people. And so it was a serious thing whenever a family, a name was cut off from receiving an inheritance. And during the year of Jubilee, Leviticus 25 says, all the property is to go back to the original family members. So whenever this kind of redemption and selling happened, it was a lease that happened in regard to how many years there were until the year of Jubilee. And so the poor would sell their land in order to to be sustained throughout hard times. And the, the thing is, God is so insistent that the land stay within the family, that even during that time, He's not happy with it as it were. And so the next of kin are to act as redeemers, to purchase that land back so that it stays within the families, within the clans, within the tribes. That's what's happening here. So what this is about is on the eve of the seeming destruction that they know it's, it's real, but they're wanting to delude themselves and deny it, but they know it's real. What they're trying to delude themselves about in the present, Jeremiah's testifying is a certainty in the future. God is not finished with His covenant people. And so obedience, even to laws such as this, is not absurd. So Hanamel comes seeming to demand that Jeremiah act as the Redeemer. You see how it's Hanamel who's the one thinking like an American. How do I come out ahead? He's an opportunist. He is not investing in God's promises. He wants cash in his hand right now while he can get it. In chapter 26, we had the most detailed account of a legal trial in the Old Testament. In this chapter, we have the most detailed account of a legal land transaction. Jeremiah does everything accordingly. You can imagine in such straits. I don't doubt that this probably happened, these kind of exchanges. Like, yeah, here's the money, it's good, why bother with all the paperwork? Why bother with all the bureaucracy? Just, you need some help, here you go, we're good. Instead, the money's weighed out, the deed is signed, It's duplicated, there's a sealed copy and there's an open copy. And then both documents are entrusted by Jeremiah to Baruch to place in an earthenware vessel for preservation so that they may last a long time. (laughs) These things aren't going to be relevant for a while. Make sure they last. How good is this method of preservation? Well... The Dead Sea Scrolls were preserved by exactly this method for a period of roughly 2,000 years. So yeah, they'll keep. 
for a long time. Jeremiah just needed 70 or so. The real reason is finally explicitly stated why this is all to take place. Verse 15, For thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. Whenever Hannibal marched his army up to the walls of Rome, there was an auction that day in Rome for the very plot of land that Hannibal encamped on. And it sold for full market price. They did that as a defiant patriotic act. What Jeremiah does here is no act of confidence in King Zedekiah and the armies of Jerusalem, but in confidence of Yahweh of hosts, his God, and his promises. This elaborate sign has a really simple point. You see, God is good on his promises to his people. And if you believe that, you will live karam deo, you'll live before his face, as it were. You'll live in obedience to his word and his truth. As you see Jeremiah doing here. Obedience to God, walking in his ways, often makes absolutely zero sense as an investment in this life. But we don't live in, in reference to this life. It is not short-term. It is not even long-term investments that are our concern, but eternal investments. You won't seek to make a buck while you can as Hanamel did, but you'll live in obedience to Yahweh's word and in love to your neighbor. And costly though it may be, you know you cannot outgive your God. This legal transaction is followed by a prayer, verses 16 through 25, but what kind of prayer is it? Well, it opens with praise. On a surface level, as we look at this prayer, I just want you to note this is an excellent prayer to learn how to pray from. It begins with adoration, with praise. We use the acronym ACTS often to guide us in prayer. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Many wise in the faith have taught us it is well to begin your prayers with praise, directing your eyes toward God. Our prayers are so often full of supplication, and as you examine Jeremiah's prayer here, that element seems almost completely absent. It's only implicitly felt, as it were, if there's any kind of petition here at all. Jeremiah first praises God as Creator, verse 17. All oh, Lord Yahweh, it is You who have made the heavens and the earth by Your great power and by Your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for You. That conclusion Nothing is too hard for you is the key element of Jeremiah's prayer. And you see that by the way it's brought up with Yahweh's answer. It's the key element, especially as you couple it with the next element of praise. Verses 18 through 19 praises him as covenant Lord. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is Yahweh of hosts. Mind you why I'm quite adamant 
that when you see all caps Lord, you understand there is a name represented there, Yahweh. You see it right here, whose name is, and then you have a title in our English translations, Lord. The point Jeremiah wanted to make was not a title, it was a name, and it was God's covenant name that he gave to his people in redeeming them. And one way you see how poor this works is kind of translating and understanding the text is you go back to verse 17, how God was addressed as Lord God, and you see all caps, God. O Lord Yahweh. The translators were consistent. It would be all Lord, Lord. There's a name at play here. He's calling on the covenant name of God at this point. And the way he describes him in reference to that is he's this God of steadfast love. And this means both faithfulness in love and judgment of guilt. You remember whenever Moses pled to see God's glory, God said, stand here and I'll proclaim my name. And he did so in a way that's defining that name. And he says, we read, Exodus 34, 5-7, Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. You see? How Jeremiah has recalled exactly this in his prayer. He's the creator. Nothing is too far hard for him. And he is their covenant Lord. Jeremiah then moves on to recall the covenant Lord's acts on behalf of his people in verses 20 through 23. And this is an element that's also absent in our prayers, is it not? To recall God's dealings with His people? To speak to God about what He has done? I mean, He was there, we were not. Why are we telling Him what He has done? It could feel awkward. Doesn't God already know this? Does He know your petitions any less than He does the past? And yet you're not shy to let Him know your petitions. Maybe if we recalled God's acts in the past more in our prayers, we would pray more in line with His will in the present. The story of who God is, of what He has done, of Jeremiah's identity with the people of God, it shapes his prayers. It's the substance of his prayer. If our prayers feel shallow, perhaps it's because we're praying in light of our little story that we think we're telling rather than the big one that God has swept us up into. Jeremiah, having just done a small act to redeem a little piece of land, recalls how God redeemed His people out of Egypt with great signs and wonders and gave them the land promised to them, this land flowing with milk and honey, verses 20 through 22. And yet, despite God's great covenant love for them, 
his faithfulness to them. Jeremiah says they did not obey him. They did not keep his commands. Verse 23. And it's for this reason, verses 23 through 24, that disasters come upon them. The siege mounds are built up to the very walls of the city. Because of sword, famine, and pestilence, this city is given over into the hand of the Chaldeans. So that what Yahweh has spoke has come to pass. And he sees it. Remember as he, as he told Jeremiah in chapter, uh, chapter 1 in his calling? That he has called Jeremiah both to destroy, to pluck, to overthrow. And that he's watching over his word to perform it. He has spoken, it's happened, he sees it. But destruction is not the only word Yahweh has spoke. He said he's watching over his word not only to pluck, but to plant. Not only to destroy, but to build. This is not all that Yahweh has said. And so Jeremiah recalls, yet you said... You have said to me, buy the field for money. So what kind of prayer is this? Is it a prayer of confusion? Or is it a prayer of confidence? A bit of both, I suppose. But I think it really is a prayer born out of confusion that's working its way towards confidence. That's what Jeremiah has been doing in recalling all these things. Nothing is too hard for you. You are the covenant God. And that means both judgment and salvation. You have spoken. You watched over your word. You performed it. And yet you've also spoke to me, God. You also said, buy this field. And you've made clear what that means. Houses and fields and vineyards shall be bought again in this land. This is exactly the answer Yahweh gives Jeremiah. He is indeed Yahweh, verse 27. He's the God of all flesh. Do you see both elements? He's Yahweh, He's their covenant Lord, and He's the God of all flesh. He's Creator. Nothing is too hard for Him. Neither judgment nor bringing redemption on the other side of such a devastating judgment. Nothing is too hard for Him. Because he is Yahweh, he gives this city into the hand of the Chaldeans so that they capture it, verse 28. They will burn it along with their houses, the roofs on which they have worshipped false gods, verse 29. He will do this because they have done nothing but evil from their youth. Nothing but provoke him with the work of their hands, verse 29. On the very day he was etching in stone the essence of the covenant, They were with their hands making a golden calf to provoke him to anger. And they have repeated that ever since. The city has aroused his anger and wrath from the day it was built even to this day. So that he'll remove it from his sight with all their kings, their officials, their prophets, their priests, everyone. Verses 31 through 32. And then in verse 33. You see this. It's speaking of. Jeremiah of Israel, Judah, turning her back to him instead of her face. And this word for turning has been used again and again. It is, it, it, Jeremiah is saturated with it. Again and again, Jeremiah, uh, 
Israel's sin, Judah's sin, is spoken of as having turned away from Yahweh. And her only hope is spoken of with the exact same word. Her sin is that she turned, and her hope is that she will turn. She's turned away, and God is calling for her to turn back. But here, He's promising. A turning. Verse 33. They have turned, I haven't got there yet, the promise isn't yet, forgive me. Verse 33, they have turned to me their back and not their face. And though I've taught them persistently, they have not received instruction. They've even filled his house, verse 34, with abominations. This rose to its height under Manasseh. And though Josiah purged the temple thereafter, they soon returned to these ways. In the valley of the son of Hinnom, they offer up their sons and their daughters to Molech. Now following that list of sins, what would you expect Yahweh to say? Because of this, I'm done. And instead of destruction, instead of utter destruction, there's a promise of restoration, verse 36. Now therefore... In light of all of that, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, concerning the city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them. This has dumbfounded many commentators. How does that therefore work? Well, it goes back to what Jeremiah has prayed and what Yahweh began with. He is indeed Yahweh, and He is the Creator Nothing is too hard for him. He will bring judgment. Nothing's too hard from him. From a judgment that so devastates, he will restore and redeem. He's watching over his word to perform it. He will gather them. In his covenant love, he will bring them back to the land to dwell in safety, verse 37. Covenant will be restored, verse 38, so that he is their God and they are his people. And this time he'll give them one heart and one way. That they may fear Him forever. Verse 39. This one heart speaks to a singleness of heart. A heart that's devoted. You remember perhaps the most uh, well-known text to the Hebrew is Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6 verses 4 through 5. What's known as the Shema. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God. Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Hear. Yahweh our God is one, you shall love Him with all. There's not some pantheon of gods in which you divvy up your love. There is one God and Lord, He gets all. Israel's tried to act like the pagans. Sure, we'll marry God in covenant love, but we'll court these others as well. And here Yahweh is promising a singleness of heart towards Him in covenant love. The covenant God makes with them in restoring them, verse 40, is an everlasting covenant in which He will not turn from doing good to them, verse 40. This is that same word. He will not turn from doing good to them. They have turned away 
And now He's promising He will not turn away from them and doing good to them. And the way in which He will not turn away from doing good to them is that He will put the fear of Him in their hearts so that they won't turn. God's love won't turn from them so that they won't turn from Him. This is why we say that the saints both persevere in the faith and they are preserved in the faith. Man perseveres because God preserves. And when His work of redemption in us is complete, our hearts pure and our bodies new, we will never again turn our eyes from His lovely face to even glance at another. Not only will God not turn from doing them good, He says He will rejoice, verse 41, in doing good. He will plant His people in the land promised to them with all His heart, with all His soul. God doesn't enter into this covenant begrudgingly. He doesn't promise these things half-heartedly. Isaiah, speaking of these very same promises of restoration, puts it this way. As a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And the grounds underlying this is that Yahweh, for whom nothing is too hard, verse 42, will, just as He has brought all this disaster upon them, so also bring upon them all the good that He promises them. In both judgment and grace, you see, He's Yahweh. The judgment that's coming upon them is God's covenant faithfulness. How certain can they be of the restoration? Well, the judgment that's coming is God's keeping His promise. And He's made the promise of restoration as well. Just as He's being faithful in judgment, so will He be faithful to His covenant in redeeming them. And all of this speaks of, not, of something that's not temporal or slight, but something that's everlasting and full. God, He says, will restore their fortunes. In this everlasting covenant. A millennium is not long enough to cram this into. What you're reading about here involves God's covenant faithfulness to Abraham to give the people of God the land promised to them. And now listen to the way that that promise of land swells when it's watered by the blood of the new covenant of Christ. Romans 4. He, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, 
and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring, which it's just been made clear, his offspring involves the circumcised who walk according to his way and the uncircumcised. The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The joy of this passage, don't miss the meaning for the metaphor. The joy of this passage is not that legal transactions will happen again. Yay! Paperwork, bureaucracy, signed deeds and seals. Hooray, the point of this passage is not the joy of that. It's the joy that the people of God will enter into their eternal inheritance. Because it's been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And it can never be taken away again. And their hearts will then be forever bound to their covenant Lord and husband, never to turn away. Jeremiah made the best deal ever, not because of what he got out of it in this life, but because of what God promised for the next. As Derek Kidner comments, 17 shekels of silver were surely never better spent. In the face of devastating judgment, God promised eternal mercy. As this city is crumbling and burning, can the people of God really believe that this city will shine again in pristine glory as the place where God dwells among His people? Can they? Yes. Because He is the Creator who made heaven and earth. And He will make it anew in the new covenant. Nothing is too hard for Him. Judgment came in power because He is the sovereign omnipotent and because He is their covenant Lord. And redemption will come in power because He is the sovereign omnipotent and their covenant Lord. Nothing is too hard for Him. So as you look around at sin, at its curse, at the depravity of man. Yet, God has spoken redemption in Christ. He spoke the curse on man and Adam. And He's spoken blessing on a new humanity in the second Adam, Christ. So I admonish you with the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians Look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Or the words of Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is 
imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith. That's that singleness of heart. For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you rejoice. Though now for a little while you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Father, in the midst of the bit of confusion, chaos and curse that we see around us. We lift up our voices and we say, yet you have spoken. And you've spoken in Christ. And that word is sure. And that Christ is our rock, our refuge, our salvation. We have nothing but him. And in Him, we have everything. And so we praise, we thank, we glorify you now. In His name, Amen.